it was absolutely that people started thinking, well, some brave brand started thinking that, you know, we, we should actually try engaging instead of broadcasting. Um, and I think also we, we had a couple of things that happened to us that sort of propelled us into, into sort of national fame. Welcome to The Purposeful Project. We help entrepreneurs for free. On the Purposeful Project podcast, we share real-life stories from some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. We like to think our podcast will provide mentorship to those that need it and give you access to the knowledge you need to start and scale a business. To hear these incredible stories, follow us on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere you listen to podcasts, or you can simply visit purposefulproject.com. Welcome to the podcast, Justine. It's so wonderful to have you here. Thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure, Simon. Pleased to be here. Well, maybe we could start off by you <laughs> kindly telling the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yes, sure. So my name is Justine Roberts. I am the CEO and founder of Mumsnet and Grandsnet. Um, they are websites, and uh, Mumsnet has been around for 20 years. It's a website for parents where parents can swap uh, advice, information, support, friendship, and fun. Uh, and Grandsnet, we started about seven years ago, and it's very much the same thing, but for grands. I, I always love founders because. Um actually surprisingly humble and i was just looking at the numbers and correct me if this is out of date because we, we grabbed this from the internet so it could be like um you've got 10 million unique users per month i mean this is this yeah, is an incredible right. business you've built up i'd lead with that personally if i if i had 10 million listeners to my podcast it'd be the first thing i said before introducing you or myself so um but i i uh, i know uh, i think it's, it's it's always humble when people just describe what they do but it's incredible what you've achieved and i mean you started this business in in 2000 that was also a pretty pretty tough year to start an online business right so maybe do you mind telling us a little bit about that that time and what happened yeah, yeah, well, it was the time, if you cast your mind back, for, to the sort of internet gold rush. And you couldn't actually really meet anyone um, in the street without sort of them, them telling you what their internet startup idea was. Uh, and lots of people had internet startup ideas. And I got mine when I went on holiday with my then nearly one-year-old uh, twin girls. Um, and we we picked... Um, a disastrous, it was the most disastrous holiday really for all sorts of reasons, but mainly because we were such ingenues as parents and then had no idea what we were doing. So we, we, you know, we went to the wrong destination in the wrong time zone. It was certainly the wrong resort. And frankly, it was with the wrong children. Uh, and we uh, had a miserable holiday along with, frankly, most of the parents who were on uh, in that destination too. Uh, and it sort of occurred to me that it would be nice to swap uh, information about this and, uh, before we left so we didn't waste a load of money. And of course, then it wasn't just holidays, was it? It was everything to do with parenting and kids, for which we are not very well trained. I certainly wasn't. Um, and yet it's one of the most important things we do. So there was this thing called the Internet. It hadn't been around too long. Um, but it seemed like a really good idea to be able to tap into the wisdom of others who've been there and done that. And that's really what we're still doing to this day. We're allowing people to tap into others' wisdom uh, in, in the sort of belief that that makes parents' lives easier. It makes so much sense now, of course, looking back that a platform like yours would, would do so well. But at the time, did you feel that? Was there apprehension? Did you... Did you feel like it was a big risk? How, how did it feel back then? Um, it was, well, it was, as I say, it was in the time when everyone was thinking about what their web business would be. But actually it was, um, it was, it was fortunate in a way for me that I was uniquely in a position, I think, or not uniquely, but I was in an unusual position where I could give it a go because I'd actually, as soon as I got pregnant, left my job in investment banking knowing that this was no place, um, no place to raise kids, really, no place to be a mum. And I'd seen that from the example of people who'd gone on, especially women who'd got on. They'd really done it by pretending their family didn't exist. So the luck for me was that not only did I have an idea, I don't think it was rocket science, by the way, it was just, you know, an idea, but I actually had the sort of time 
and space because I'd taken a career gap. I'd actually started writing about football, but that was very much on a freelance basis to give something a go. Um, and so that was the that was the good luck. The bad luck, of course, was that the dot com bubble burst pretty damn quickly and people went from being very excited about the Internet to actually, you know, really thinking it might be a flash in the pan and it wouldn't last very long. And certainly all the funding went away. So that proved a bit of a battle. It's incredible to think that there was a time like that. A lot of my listeners are quite young, coming out of university, thinking of starting a business of their own. You know, the concept that the internet could be a flash in the pan just just is insane, yeah. isn't it? But I remember that time myself, so uh, I know exactly what you mean. I started a web design company in 2001, and people are like, what is the point? No one cares. And so um, yes. absolutely an incredible moment. But, but I mean, I, I guess just looking at that, I mean, a lot of people would be listening thinking, wow, you've got – Twin girls, one years old. It really doesn't sound like the ideal time to start a company. Um, and so... Again, I was lucky because um, I had a friend who had taught himself to code. Um, so he never actually, I mean, until much later joined the business. He did all this on a part-time basis. He actually could go and build something. Um, and then I think the other piece of the pie was whilst it was very hard not to raise money because clearly we had an exciting business plan and 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 the sort of mantra then was land grab you know scale up as fast as you can potentially you know sell quite quickly as well um but but the fact that everything dried up for a bit and no one really um i mean all the money went and and that means all the competition went there were quite a few well-funded um, competitors that disappeared quite quickly um, and because we hadn't raised money we didn't have a high cost base and, and we could build Mumsnet in the way that really it needed to be built which was kind of organically and by word of mouth um, because there was no business model I mean you know we based, our model is essentially an advertising model and brands then were very very skeptical about advertising on the social web. They certainly didn't want to engage with real people. They just wanted to broadcast. So the idea that real people could potentially criticize them was not something they were gonna do. And it really didn't change until Facebook arrived and Twitter arrived sort of four or five years later. And suddenly everyone was going, oh, web 2.0, the social web, that's the thing. And I sort of looked at my co-founder and said, Ah, we're, we're Web 2.0. <laughs> this might work for us after all, having sort of existed from a back bedroom on a shoestring for five years with no revenue at all to speak of. I think you brought up a really important point around uh, building a business and, and having no money, how it can be a good thing. I think that's a really interesting thing for my listeners to pick up on because I think so many people want to start a business and they think they need money to do it. But sometimes having a scarcity of money can create a lot of innovation. And I'm guessing that's what's happened in your business, right? You you had to innovate. Yeah, and I, I think we did have to innovate, but even more than that, we sort of, we, we almost started at the wrong time. So as I alluded, until Facebook and Twitter came along, people were very mistrusting of the social web, not our users, but certainly, you know, business and advertisers. So having no money meant we could hang on in there. Because uh, we didn't have a big burn rate, we didn't have a big cost base, we didn't have uh, an office in Clerkenwell. And had I raised money, and I did try, I tried to raise four and a half million quid, then we would have had all those things and frankly wouldn't have lasted very long. It was the fact that what was required was, you know, keeping the cost base very low until the timing was right. And I think probably a lot of businesses maybe are good ideas and good businesses, but they, their timing's a bit off. And being able to su survive that was really a function of actually having and not spending any money. Um, because, yeah, we saw lots of businesses similar to us in the same space, you know, die a, a very painful death where they had to lay off reams of staff. And, uh, and once you've sort of lost that trust, you never get it back again. So and I'm also I'm also very skeptical of the venture model generally because their aims are not necessarily aligned to those of uh, the, the entrepreneur, because what they're looking for is the one in 10 big hit. And they don't really mind if the other nine fail. They're gonna push you to grow and grow and grow. And that might be not the right model. A slower growth model might actually be the right model, as it was with Monster. 
So I think people should think about it and not think that it's the, the only way to go about starting a business. I think there are, there are, there, you will be pushed if you raise venture money to, to grow at, at all costs. And sometimes growing, growing fast is really hard uh, and it means you don't do things very efficiently. And in our case, it would have been the wrong thing because we would have noticed after growing an enormous team that we had, didn't have any revenue and it would have looked like a bad business. But in fact, what we needed to do was really wait out the slump uh, and wait for the, the business world to catch up with what was going on, really. But and meantime, meantime, we grew to scale. We grew our user base and, and that was ultimately what we needed to become both a better product, but also also a viable sort of uh, business to advertise with. So how did you, again, for my listeners, I um, understand how to build a business. How did you build that user base? What was what was the kind of process you went through to kind of build it up grassroots like that? Yeah. Well, number one, it was really quite slow. If you look at the graph of Mumsnet unique users, you know, it's a it's pretty damn flat for the first five years. But there were two main ways I did it. Initially, Mumsnet is largely a forum. That's where most of the traffic is. It wasn't the original idea, but but it became all about the forum. So to get that going, I actually started off with an awful lot of different usernames. And uh, luckily I had a lot of questions. And uh, I would ask myself different questions under different usernames. Um, and so it was that kind of level of involvement where you are literally creating the content by being the user yourself. And I remember at one point, a friend of mine run me up, she was pregnant and she had, was having palpitations. She wanted to know if I'd had them when I was pregnant. And I said, well, I do know something about that actually, but I'm only going to answer your question if you ask it on Mumsnet. And I sort of felt a bit guilty and rushed off to answer her. And by the time I got there, two people had answered. Uh, and so that was my eureka moment. There is actually someone else there that found us. But I think the other big thing for me was I'd, I'd done a bit of journalism. And I managed to um, swing a gig where I wrote about a diary of a dot-com startup in the Times. So, you know, I managed to get um, quite, a, quite a few sort of, um, quite a bit of awareness from having a, a weekly column um, talking about the trials and tribulations of starting a, a website in, in the dot, once the dot-com bubble had burst. I think it's um, it, it's really fascinating to hear uh, entrepreneur stories. I love this concept of you sitting on the computer replying to yourself with the answers. It makes yeah. me smile. I think it's just um, it, it, it is yeah arguing with myself because obviously you know <laughs> controversy works very, right. Very, yeah, I was a very inexpert parent, so luckily I had you know lots of counter views even within my own head right about how to do. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel the same way about entrepreneurship. You know, that's why whenever someone gives advice on entrepreneurship, I always find myself giving the opposite advice just to just to give yeah. that person a different perspective. I guess it's yeah, the same it with parenting, happen. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, it is. There's always some. Um, well, as we said, there's always um, more than one way to skin a cat, right? Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if you ever banned yourself. You're like, you know, you're getting way too aggressive towards yourself there, and you're like, better ban that person. But, um, I, I didn't. I probably should have. <laughs> on <the> <laughs> so, what other um, tips and tricks? I, I think I, I, I read a lot about like newsletters, for example. I feel like the outreach part, and 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 did you do a lot of that sort of stuff? We did, and um, we um, we we sort of. I mean, I think we we involved the users as much as we could, and and. It, that became a very natural thing for us. One, because Mumsnet, by definition, is a sort of 24-7 focus group. But secondly, again, because we had no money, we had to ask them to support us at various times. And, and I would wake up and find, you know, checks for 200 quid in the post saying, please keep going. So so it, it naturally became that we would, uh, that our users became a stakeholder for us. And I think that, would, again, was more by luck than judgment, was the right model for growing a community. So we would consult our users on everything from, you know, obviously design and product features, but also on who we might work with in a commercial sense. Um, and I think, you know, it's not a surprise that our users call themselves mums netters. You know, they, they believe they are, um, you know, very, a, a very key stakeholder as indeed they are. 
and have always been involved in the decision making. And that's tough, you know, it means you, you're, you're always under scrutiny, a lot of scrutiny, but I think it's kept us on the straight and narrow and kept us honest. And it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I think we, we, we get, um, well, so much brand loyalty and so much engagement is because people feel that they are part of something. Uh, it's not just a product. It's Joey. It's such a lovely story to hear um, the kindness of people. Someone sending you a two hundred pound check and saying, "Please keep going." You know that that is just yeah. amazing. I actually, I've, I've built many, many companies. Um, most of them quite you know selfish enterprises, building them as companies that make me money. This platform I'm building now, I think, is the first time I've actually built something where I just want to help people for free. And I yeah. was shocked recently when someone sent me a thousand dollars to support the platform i didn't ask for the money but it's just yeah. unbelievable i've never this community thing you're talking about i've never experienced it before and you've clearly been doing it for the last 20 years but when you tell that story it's just happened to me that and it really resonates if you could if you start people will give you money to keep you around with no need for yeah. anything in return you know you've got something special right that that yeah. is so, so unique we've kind of got product market fit if people you know i was getting emails saying which I, again, was, a, you know, I hadn't been really part of what I'd envisaged, but, but saying, you know, you've literally, mum's that's literally saved my life. You know, um, I, I've found solace from people there. I've been helped through my kind of domestic violence relationship. I've been helped with my bereavement or my miscarriage. Or I've been taught to breastfeed in the middle of the night when no one else was there for me. I mean, it was, um, it was, it was it became much more powerful than we ever thought it would be you know we thought it was going to be sort of trip advisor for parents um and then with a bit of expert advice from people who'd been there and done that but actually it became more about support people supporting through each other through difficult moments and I, you know i'm always minded of i sort of was grew up in the thatcher years and and her saying there's no such thing as society but, you know, that's that's just blatantly not true because on mums that people willingly go out of their way to help each other and they're complete strangers. Um, and they have they often have nicknames which do, certainly don't identify them. They are anonymous. And yet people will stay up till three in the middle of the night hand holding someone who is struggling with breastfeeding uh, and all the rest of it. So it's it's, it's very. Um, I don't know, it's good for the soul to see that much human kindness going on. And, and I know internet forums and social media can get a bad name with them. Um, and sometimes there's no doubt our users can be blunt. But on the whole, there's way much more kindness than there is nastiness. Uh, and it's not for any personal gain either. It's. I think it's good to look at the positive in humanity. I guess the news always, I think, highlights the negative. But um, stories like yours yeah. are, are inspirational. True story. Um, and, and a sad one, but uh, had a, a good ending in the end. But my wife and I were living in Hong Kong, and we uh, mm. we had a miscarriage. And uh, we I, I'd never experienced uh, the concept of a miscarriage, in, in, you know. And so we we googled, you know, what what to do, sort of thing. And uh, Mum's net mm. came up, um, and we were in Hong Kong, and and we read on there how people had dealt with it and the different types of things you can do once you've had a miscarriage because it's not how I thought it was going to be without getting too graphic on this podcast but it wasn't how I thought it was going to be just you know it's it's no longer there it was still in in inside and so you know we didn't know what to do uh, and, and mum's net saved our life and, and here's a kind of I guess um, an ungrateful element which I don't like about human nature when I read it on mum's net and my wife and I read it uh, what you know what it all meant and people's different opinions and it really helped us yeah. but we just we just we didn't recognize the platform we just we you know what I mean we didn't we just thought oh that platform must be making money we didn't I should have sent you a check is what I'm saying I think I should have said I should have said I should have made a comment at least saying thank you um, there's still time yeah there's still time yeah but uh, but no but seriously you it, it just, I think there's a lot of people out there that have had help from you and um and don't realize that you know it's it's you that's created it you know what I mean it's so big now it's almost seen as a business so you know you're providing a service to people but it but that's I guess what happens when you scale but um but yeah true, true story it helped us too so thank you for that I just wanted to go back well, to um sorry go, didn't want to interrupt you sorry just did you say something? No, it's my brother and, 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 you know, it's not really all, you know, the, when you say you built it, it's all about the people on it uh, yeah. giving up their time and their insights and their expertise. So, you know, in that sense, it is a platform. Mm. Um, and we, you know, I don't 
take very personal. I've got a feeling. Um, I've got a feeling it was you um, on the other end now, though. Just, yeah. just, just joking aside. I've got, it was probably you on the other end typing away. Don't worry, it'll be fine. <laughs> it's still you. You are those ten million users. Um, but I just wanted to go back to the early days because a lot of a lot of the listeners listening in. I mean, they dream of starting a business, and you know, they. I know some people who listen to our podcast have started a business, and 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 it's got tough, and they've they've had to stop. And I was just thinking to what you said earlier. You know, five years in, and the curve is flat. Right, that would be to mm. some people an indication that the market doesn't want what you've got to offer. So, 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 how did you yes. know that wasn't true, and how did you keep going and just trying because, to inspire those uh, listening? Yeah. Well, because we we had twin, if you like, there were twin markets we were operating in. One was, do are we growing? You know, are we, are the people who are using us, even though there aren't fabulous amounts of numbers, finding the product incredibly useful? So I suppose it comes back to this product market fit thing. You know, would they shout if you tried to take it away? Uh, and, and would they notice and would they care? And, and unequivocally, our users were getting the, the few people who were using it. And it wasn't, it was growing. It just wasn't growing exponentially in the way that it subsequently did um, at, later, at a later stage. But it was obviously incredibly useful to the people using it. Um, so, so much so that they were sending checks and stuff like that. Um, I think the flip side of that was the business model wasn't there. So it was definitely, you know, the reason we kept going was because people were, um, you know, the engagement levels of the people using it were extraordinary. They were off the clock. Um, they were writing and saying, this is, you know, a lifesaver. So we could see the value. We just couldn't convince um, you know, anyone else who might want to sort of pay for it um, to see any value yet. So, so that, I think it was that that kept, I always believed there must be a business in here somewhere. But for a while, um, honestly, it was run a bit like a charity, but it was a very useful charity. Mm. And so was there a moment where you thought to stop or did you just never have that, never crossed your mind? No, it didn't really because I thought it had such utility. Um, and I was in the lucky position, again, luck paying a factor was, you know, I had worked as an, in an investment bank for 10 years. I'd sort of, you know, I'd done my, I'd done my stint that gave me a bit of financial leeway. Um, and I also had a supportive husband as well in the, in the mix. So, no, I, I, I did believe even if it was never going to turn a profit, that it was a very use, useful and valuable thing to be doing and a good use of my time, frankly. I think this illustrates something I really believe in, which is purpose. And so um, if you have something that has enough purpose, then you're willing to put money into it and you're willing to keep going, right? It feels like it had a very strong core that gave it that strength. Yeah. Which I, yeah. Think, I think a lot yeah, of businesses lack. Right. A lot of businesses yeah. lack that. I've carried on doing it even if... Was your burn rate quite high? I mean, you say you say it was low. I mean, was was it an expensive business to operate in the early days? I mean, you have a website that's not cheap to operate those those, those these sorts of forming platforms, right? Hosting and so uh, on. Well, we begged and borrowed quite a lot. Um, you know, like various people helping um, who were friends, and you know, um, it's it wasn't expensive. No, we operated from a back bedroom. Um, but I didn't earn a salary for six years. So that's the, that was the kind of opportunity cost, as it were. And, um, another great lesson there, though, isn't it? You know, like do, do something with purpose and you're willing to work out of your back office, back room to do it. And um, it's, it, that, that stuff doesn't matter. The service does, right? Okay, there's a bit, an important lesson in that, that point there. I think a lot of people will think that they have to get a yeah, fancy office I, and, and so on. Yeah, and I think the the key to it is, you know, have you got something that people want? You know, if you, even if you can't quite work out how to make the financials work or the business model work, are you providing a service or a product or, you know, something similar that people really value? Um, and you know, we've always struggled with things like paywalls and getting the community to pay because uh, there's something philosophically difficult about having user-generated content and then charging people for it. And also, you know, the, the scale of problems that people had were so urgent um, 
you know, thinking of you and your, you know, I'm very sorry about your miscarriage, but if you'd Googled and, and there'd immediately been a sign up here, you've got to subscribe. It, it, it actually feels wrong in people's hour of need to put a paywall up. So we were happy to, to carry on and basically, and I was fortunate in the position that I could afford to um, because I knew it was really helpful. I knew it was getting bigger and I knew one day that that must be a valuable thing. And, and, you know, just required, you know, it required patience. That's a business model well known now, isn't it? Thank, thanks to platforms like Facebook and so on, you know, build up value and use and then monetize later. But that was definitely not the mindset in 2000. Uh, so that was, it was, it was no, a burn money mindset then really, yeah. I guess, before the dot com. And then afterwards, it was about like, make money or don't do it kind of mindset. Was it, it completely yeah. flipped? It was burn money pointlessly before 2000 and then it was only do businesses that make money after 2000 right it really this model now that everyone seems to hear about with facebook eight nine years and making no income just doesn't really exist yeah. uh, it didn't really exist before you pioneered it so when did you when did you figure out the business model what what changed to suddenly make it work i mean was it facebook coming to the market educating the market what, what was the what was the flip do you think yeah i think it was well it was a combination of things so it was um it was absolutely that people started thinking, well, some brave brand started thinking that, you know, we, we should actually try engaging instead of broadcasting. Um, and I think also we we had a couple of things that happened to us that sort of propelled us into, into sort of national fame. Um, some of them a bit tricky. And the first one was we were sued by the leading childcare author of the day and she tried to get us shut down. Um, and that was, Quite, it became a, quite an interesting thing. It was really about the fact that uh, the libel laws on uh, for internet publishers hadn't really caught up with the internet at all. And so we were treated like a newspaper. So everything that was written on the platform, uh, you know, uh, effectively, as far as this um, person who was suing us was concerned, was, was my own words. You know, I was writing it. Um, and, and she, she was a childcare author and she was a bit of a polarizing figure. Um, and people either, you know, violently disagreed with her or, or absolutely loved her and were fan, fans of hers. So there was, a, um, there was various debates about whether her methods were lifesavers or a bit cruel. And she took objection and, and we became a bit of a core celebre for, for, um, freedom of speech on the web. Um, and for changing the libel laws. Um, and so, you know, that propelled, we, uh, we were the lead item on Channel 4 News and it was two weeks of, you know, being in the spotlight that was, I won't forget, and many, many lawyers' letters. And, um, and it was sort of life-threatening, but again, it felt life-threatening, but there was a flip side of that was we were getting unbelievable amounts of publicity. Um, and it propelled our users up. So that was one thing. And then I think very soon after that, David Cameron came and did a web chat on Mumstat. So he'd just become leader of the Tory party. And, and they decided that they wanted to be seen to be modern. He just had a baby. He came and had a web chat with our users. And that began the sort of tradition, really, of, uh, of the Mumsnet web chat with high-profile politicians, which... Um, again, sort of propelled us into the public consciousness in a way. What, were you, what year was that, David Cameron? So that was sort of 2006. 2006. Yeah, 2006. I, I think I vaguely remember that because I think there was some controversy because he, he, he was doing the interview from a kitchen that looked small and it turned out it was the second kitchen in his home or something. And he tried to go to the second kitchen in his home to make it look like he was living a normal life. No, that, that's another fascinating insight from experience that you were sharing there. And I, I don't want my audience to miss it, that sometimes the bad things that happen to you are actually good things in disguise. And so uh, it's fascinating to have that sort of like, it must have been quite stressful for you at the time, though. I mean, you, you, I'm sure you would have been happy not to have all that stress at the time. Yeah, no, I mean, as anyone who knows who's, who's gone through, a, I mean, it was a bit like going through a divorce. You, you literally can't talk about anything else. And we had a year of being sued, really, um, and unremitting, you know, legal attacks. Um, and to give you a flavour, one of the things, you know, one of the complaints made um, was that uh, one user had referred to this parenting guru as someone who straps babies to rockets and launches them into southern Lebanon. 
um, i.e., you know, a joke, I would say. But we, we didn't stop the lawyers' letters coming. You know, you have to rebut them all. That's the thing. And that all takes time and money. And you become a bit of a bore whenever you enter something like that. So I was quite pleased to end it all, even though in... in there must have been a lot of memes around like nanny state and stuff like that. One of the, one of the um, great reactions actually was our users. Um, we banned all mention of um, this woman on our website because we couldn't guarantee that the mentions would not elicit more legal responses. And our users immediately christened her as she who must not be named, uh, which was very funny and flippant. Then on, that's what she was known as. I, I, I guess um, <laughs> I, I think that the, these sorts of things are fascinating because they're, at the time you feel like it's the end of the world for your business. But then in hindsight, it's, it's so fascinating to hear. I'm sure that was not their intention to make you even more successful, for example. Um, so it's funny, the byproducts of, 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 of positive versus negative. You know, it, it, to me, it's always it's always interesting to see, you know, who wins in the long term in positive versus negative. And so, but yeah, yeah I mean, the other thing is the nanny state, right? I kind of want to do a meme around it. There must, there must have been some memes around nanny state because it's like, don't, don't whatever you do, tie your baby to a rocket, you know, like, it's like, it's crazy that you'd even have to like label that is this is not good advice, you know? And so, um <laughs> it becomes ridiculous doesn't it really when the world gets that that that, that silly but um, so so you mentioned um before that you tried to raise money and and it didn't work um so what 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 uh, what, what was it the timing again was it the timing issue that's why the money you didn't raise the money was it just just the timing issue um no i think there was um a credibility issue as well um and some of which is for good reason but we did get quite close to raising four and a half million pounds actually from from one investor um but he wanted to put someone else in charge and in fact that person was a 25 year old childless man um because you know was clearly very doubtful about whether I could run this business. And, and with fair enough, you know, if you're investing money, you kind of want to see someone who's run a business before. However, I do think the one thing that was in my favour was that, you know, I was a mother and understood the target audience. Um, so, uh, so that I did turn that money down, thank God, you know, as it turned out, because it would have been a big mistake, because I didn't want to give up before I'd started. Um, but it was, it was also, you know, it was a, I remember going to all those meetings and, and, you know, the, it's pretty bad now, but the gender sort of balance then was extraordinary. And, you know, there were, um, there were mostly, you know, young men looking for money and there were mostly slightly older men giving the money and the solutions they were, you know, that caught their attention and caught their eye were solutions for men. Um, and I think, you know, that is an ongoing problem, although much less acute than it was, that I think, uh, you know, we're in danger of half the world's population not being served as well, because there isn't the investment going into sort of female-led and, and for female startups. So, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a of money. I, I think it's still a big problem. It's it's surprisingly not moved on uh, as as it, as it should have done. I mean, I, when I when I first when my son was born, I I said to a lot of my male friends, I'm going to be a full time father, and they're like, what? Why would you do that? You know, that's kind of nothing you can do. It's the mother's responsibility to look after the child, sort of thing. And these are you know these are what I would consider modern men, you know. But that's kind of the perception even now. That like, why would you stop working, Simon, and, and be a full time father? That's you know you go back to work. You know, almost like it's a secret. You just go back to work. It's easier. Um, yeah. and, it, and it kind yeah. of shocked me how many how many people um, within my within my circle that were like that. Um, and, I'm, and this is just recently. This is not <laughs> this is not twenty years ago. This is now. And so. Um, and, uh, and all the evidence in in lockdown has been that you know working women working parents. It's the mother who's picking up all the homeschooling. It's yeah. the mother who's picking up you know most of the domestic tasks. So. Yeah. 
Um, unfortunately, it feels like we haven't made as much progress as I would have liked to have seen in the last 20 years. But no. that, having said that, I do think we have made some. And whenever we research this on Momstat, the younger the, the sort of parents are, the more equally they seem to share stuff. So that's, that's a good thing. It is. I, as a, I co-parent with my wife is how I put it. We, uh, we share. Um, I work three days a week. She works three days a week. Um, and um, but it's bloody hard work being a full-time parent so I think that's the other thing it's uh, men have had it way too easy for way too long I, I would say I've run companies with hundreds of people but you try looking after a three-year-old all day and I'd say it's 10 times harder um, than, than, than running any business but um, there's also something important about the mental load as well I think totally. it's interesting um, you know, even when both parents work, it's who's doing the project management and who's th- liaising with the school and who's thinking about play dates and birthdays and holidays and stuff. Like that. And overwhelmingly, it's still the woman. And, yep. that, and that that is, you know, in my view, one of the reasons why, you know, women actually sometimes bow out of the workplace and uh, or bow out of senior positions and don't go for that promotion because they've got so much else. Yep. So much other responsibility that isn't fairly shared. But anyway, you've got me on. You've got me on my hobby horse. I need to get off that. No, don't. I, 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 it's it's, it's a subject I, I really like talking yeah. about. And, and actually, for me, it's very relevant to entrepreneurship and founders and all of that because because it all interlinks. To be honest, I mean, you you started your business in a way because you were a parent and you saw the problem in the market. So I feel I think this is an elongation of the problem in general of why some people can't start businesses um, because they they don't have the support yeah. in in their home to to do that and so i've started a business yeah. and my wife has started a business and we're both co-parenting and 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 actually it's not easy but but it, it didn't feel fair that i start a business and she doesn't because she's still entrepreneurial so it's a subject i'm also very passionate about we could probably do a whole podcast series just on this subject because it's really fascinating yeah. Um, yeah. but i want i wanted to, uh, to, to jump to uh, a, a subject i always like to kind of understand uh, uh, when people are building out businesses like yours so so um, you you aren't a you're a sole founder I'm, 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 and you, you, and I always find that very hard personally. And have you at points thought about bringing a co-founder in? How's it been being a sole founder? How do you think you? How have you managed to do that? I think. So, I mean. so, so that's not strictly true. So I, when we, st- I started, I came back from that holiday and I roped in. Um, as I said, my friend who who could code, who was you know basically there right from the beginning and was our CTO for many years. And I also wrote in a friend from antenatal class who, um, who was my co, you know, they were, I do treat, think of them as my co-founders, but I think it was always very clear who the driving force was, you know, that I've always been the CEO as it were. Um, but there were other people around and, and, and I would also say my husband was very involved, um, from, from an early stage as well. So it wasn't like I was completely, you know, doing it on my own and nor do I, I agree. I think, I think it is easier when you've got people to share the, particularly when it's not going so well, um, stuff with, but I do also think, you know, you, you, you need to choose people who have complementary skills um and and i'm not sure people think very carefully about that when they start um i mean you know i know i didn't i just i just basically chose people who i fancied having a laugh with really um and i think you know there's probably more thoughts that could go into that because you know it is a bit like a marriage um and even when marriages go wrong as we as we know it can be tricky and I've seen a lot of, you know, businesses sort of end prematurely, get sold prematurely. And often it's because those founders just don't get on, on, on anymore. Uh, just so many uh, bits of wisdom in there that I hope my listeners pick up on. I, I, I think that that um, complementary skill set piece is really important. And what tends to happen when I see businesses go wrong is you're attracted to people that are similar to you. 
So I, I, I love having conversations with other marketing people, but probably having two what we term as conflicting marketing people in a business is only going to cause trouble, right? It's great as friends because you can debate and have something in common, but running a business yeah. together, you're going to be arguing quite a bit. And and so, um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Every business I've ever had that's actually worked, I've had a lot of failures personally, but every ones that have worked have always been with people that have a complementary skill set. Do you same moral code? And I also think there's something about um, you, you need to be able to have regular and constant conversations about whether it's working in the same way as you probably do in a marriage. You know, you need to schedule an annual chat because the, uh, I see a lot of businesses where founders end up falling out because they put in different amounts of effort. So one is sort of viewing it a bit more as a lifestyle business. The other one wants to conquer the world. And that, you know, causes huge amounts of tension. And being able to renegotiate every year and just having that as a formal structure that so you're going to meet up and you're going to honestly be transparently say, you know, what you're prepared to put in and um, what you're contributing and what that's worth to the business without it feeling like, you know, you, you have to go through divorce proceedings. Um, you know, putting that almost in your sort of manifesto at the beginning, um, I think is a really good idea. I, I, I concur and it's something that people are scared to do um, in fact I would say people in marriages that don't ever have arguments are probably in unhappy marriages you've got to you've got to have those difficult yeah. conversations right you've got to have those you've got to have conflict yeah. yeah it gets you to meet each other in the middle quite often right so it's um, yeah it's, it's really important how have you managed to stay innovative over all these years I mean when Facebook came into the market it feels like you're so positive about it because it, it feels like it in a way it educated the market and, and so on but it must have also been a bit scary yeah um, I suppose so I mean we've, we in a way Facebook you know have their mantra that they were they were basically a data collection machine and the last thing they wanted was for anyone to be anonymous so in a way we are very differentiated from from the Facebooks and the Twitters of this world. Um, but um, I mean, I, I, you know, I probably, if I'm honest with you, would say I'm not sure we have innovated as much as we should have. Um, and I'm sure there's a bit of this podcast where you're going to ask me what I regret and what my mistakes are. <laughs> and there are many, many, but probably the single bigger, biggest one is not investing in our technology soon enough. Um and not sort of realizing that whilst we were a digital publisher, we should also be a tech business. Um, and it's taken a while to, for that to come through. So, so, but I mean, in general, what do I think about innovating? I and mean, we were quite lucky because we've made lots of amendments. But as I said, we had a 24 seven focus group telling us what to do, who were incredibly invested um, and, and didn't hold back. And I think generally the rule of thumb for innovation is stay close to your customer. Um, and as you know, Jeff Bezos says, start with the customer and work backwards. Start with, start with the you know the dream, and then work out how you're going to get to it, rather than you know thinking of doing things which you think you're quite good at. Um, so, innovation to me is all about the customer and all about understanding you know the pain points and trying to work out the solutions. It's interesting, I guess, when that also uh, leads to commercialization because. Um, you know, who's the client, the person paying you or the person you're supporting? I guess Facebook yeah. has this conflict every day. Yeah. It's a difficult one, right? Well, I think, we, I think we've got two sets of customers and they're, you know, one is one is the commercial customer and one is our audience. Um, and we need to service them both excellently and they require obviously different things. Mm. And where, where Facebook's gone wrong in my view, and I hardly use Facebook anymore, I only use it to promote the podcast, uh, but I feel like they, they went down the track of, of saying that the users were their customers and then selling their data um and so that that in my view yeah. um proved that they are not the customer right so uh, back to your point about anonymous right they, that's the last thing they want because they want to be able to sell that data to an advertiser who's their real client right so it's uh, it's yeah. a really tricky thing to get right and you have got it right but it is a tricky thing i think for people listening when they're trying to think of marketplaces it is it is a really tricky thing um and i and i find it fascinating to study people like yourself that have done it right well, you say we've got it right, but but you know we <laughs> haven't made nearly as much money as Facebook. So, but I think you know the, for me, the, we've always 
a bit, as you've said earlier, you know, purpose comes before profit. Yes. We want to make a profit, but not at, the, not at the expense of what we're trying to do here, which is make parents' lives easier. Uh, um, and, and it's, you know, trying to prove that that's possible. Yeah. And I think it is possible, but it's, but you're never going to make as much money probably. And that's fine. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm okay with that, and I'm afraid my poor investors have to be okay with that. <laughs> I, I think this is a message that needs to get out more. Again, I'm thinking of my audience who are starting businesses, and you know they read about the Mark Zuckerbergs of this world and how much, you know, they see the net worth figures coming out every month or every year. And I think the thing they're missing, I mean, I watched a video of Mark Zuckerberg walking down the street, you know, eight bodyguards. He had to buy the houses around him so that no one bothered him. You know, literally, I wouldn't want that life. Yeah. You know, there, there, there's, I'm not saying, yeah. you know, we all want to make an impact and help people and so on um, if you're a purpose-driven entrepreneur. But equally, I mean, that's, that, that comes with a price, that, that model. And selling out your customers comes with a price. Right. I mean, I, I think they're intricately linked. Right. I'm going to call it karma if you want. But I think I think your model of like look after the customers, do right by them, build out a business that's sustainable over time. Um, yeah. M- money, money comes and goes. But, you know, it's cheesy. to. It's easy to say when you've got money, but money only makes you happy if you're already happy. And so there is really something important in the message you're pointing out there. I think that it's, it's it, I, I don't think you want Facebook's money i think it brings them more trouble uh and certainly for the founders than than good and it's certainly not good for the users that's my instinct on it anyway i might no. be a silent majority on that Just one a, a small, a small facebook's money would be good but <laughs> yeah yeah well it's uh yeah it's going to be interesting to see what happens to facebook because I, I i'm i'm quite pessimistic about their future to be honest because I, I just feel like they've commercialized way too much and they they really have lost track of what you were talking about earlier uh who, who is the client i think they've lost their way on that i don't think they know who their client is anymore and so it's important you, you mentioned something there that was uh, you know and i appreciate you because you, you, you're so open and honest but you mentioned there about you know the regret in investing in technology um i, I think your platform's quite good on the tech side but 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 when do you think i mean again i'm thinking about people that have a business and they're wondering whether or not to invest in more tech what do you think it was that made you not do it you know what was the what was going on there why did it take so long for you to invest in that like you say yeah it's a really good question um i think it's because uh, i think it's because we you know i was so burnt by my early experience which was um, only the sort of leanest survived. Um, but, you know, it, I've basically been very stingy ever since. Uh, and as you know, you know, creating a, a, a best-in-class technology function requires a lot of investment. Um, so I think it was just being, a, you know, a, I, you know we, I never wanted to be a place which hired and fired that sort of in the good years, you know, ramped everything up, hired a load of people. And as soon as things got tough, you know, you let people go. So I, I think I, I was burnt by that early experience and seeing all those companies fail and I've just been a bit cautious on the spending front, um, wanting to have, not having a, a, you know, being a bit shy about having a big cost base. And, you know, I think, that's ultimately we've had to do it anyway i just wish i'd done it sooner because the the downside of having a uh a a sort of legacy platform which isn't in the more modern technologies and and uh um in the cloud and so forth means that you can't really develop very quickly so it's a false economy basically i suppose the point is you're gonna have to invest in technology eventually the sooner you can do it the better because it will make you more efficient and it will make you more agile. And all that has multiple benefits. When your Coda co-founder left, did you replace that role or, or how did you at that time deal with that? Yeah, you know, he, he went to New York and still even to this day does bits and bobs for us. But yeah, I did. Um, but I think what I didn't, I mean, it's hard to compete in the world of getting the best CTOs, but that's where we should have been competing. Um, and I think, you know, it's it's having a really strong tech team when you're a digital business is, is in the end, really, really sound investment. And I think it's, it's taking a while to understand that, you know, that people investment is your infrastructure. I mean, and, and it's worth paying up for the best people rather than sort of compromising a bit. 
Um, and I think there are many reasons for that. One is obviously you tend to get better people, you pay more, but also you can delegate and trust more. And that actually is the only way you can scale. Um, if you can't actually let some decision making go uh, and trust the people to get on with it, you, you, A, you'll, you'll interfere too much and that piss everyone off. But B, you, you actually can't, you can't replicate yourself. So you have to be able to delegate. Um, and for me, the sort of light bulb moment of being able to delegate, I always thought I was a terrible delegator, but actually I wasn't, I just wasn't really, um, I didn't really um, bring in enough talent. So you, you've got to bring in people, and, and we do routinely bring in people who are much, much better than me. And that's, that's, that's then delegation becomes a lot easier. Another great lesson there. I think I also did the same mistake. I for years thought I was the only one that could do certain things. Um, and then when I hired people, I realized there was a people out there a lot better than me. But you have to take a guess, a bit of a chance on the cash flow and stuff like that. That's sometimes the jump that people have a difficulty doing, right? Yeah, no, I think people are the sort of um, the key. Um, and hiring the right people and getting those decisions right and paying up for for you know the 10xers of this world is what really moves the business on did you did you always feel like you were an entrepreneur i'm just thinking again about my audience a lot of people don't think they're entrepreneurs they've been trained it's almost been trained out of them actually they kind of think that they're not entrepreneurs uh, did you did you know you were or your parents entrepreneurs did how did this manifest itself for you no, and, and it makes me laugh, actually, because I'm still not sure I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> I think, you know, I, I started something. Um, it's interesting. And it, there is a bit of a sort of difference between men and women here. I think women often say they start something. Men say they're entrepreneurs when they open the cupboard, you know. Um, it's, the, it's something, and I, maybe it is our sort of, you know, we're, we're too much social conditioning. But it, it feels a bit aggrandizing. I mean, I, I, there was a problem that I thought needed solving um, and I thought it would be useful. Um, but that doesn't mean that I'm the best person at taking risks and, and, you know, raising money and spending money and building businesses. I just I just attacked a problem that was very relevant to me. Um, uh, so I don't know, you know, I don't, uh, and, uh, and the way that entrepreneurs are, are fated always makes me laugh as well, because actually, uh, you know, there are plenty of other professions which probably require as much skill and risk taking and all the rest of it. Um, so yes, so maybe I'm being a bit, um, I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit sort of deflating about the whole thing but i think there's a lot of luck involved i think um it's actually about solving problems and people solve problems in many different aspects of life um yeah i think i think the uh, word i think uh, it needs rebranding doesn't it it needs rebranding it should be and we need some acronym for like someone starts a business solving a problem you know like it doesn't have to be this kind of grandiose word entrepreneurship as if it as if it's something particularly unusual yeah. Uh, and, and that's one of my problems with it because I think there's a lot of people out there right now who can't find a job and have been told they're not entrepreneurs because an entrepreneur is, you know, Gary V. You know, they look a certain way and they speak a certain way and, and that's just not true. And uh, if you go back to what your, you know, your fundamental point, there's a problem out there and you want to solve it. There you go. No, don't label yourself. Just go, go and do it, right? So, but um, yeah. That, I, I, yeah. What about your parents? Were they entrepreneurs out of interest? Well, well, let's call them uh, business no. people. Did they have their own businesses? We'll just we'll, we'll get rid of the word entrepreneur for a minute. Well, no, one, no, one, no one's run their own business. Um, my mum was in teaching and my dad was worked for IBM. Um, so, no. Um, and, I, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've always been interested in business. Um, I've always been, I did an economics degree. Um, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I would have loved to have done an MBA actually, but I sort of feel like kind of doing that um, in a in the real world, yeah. Um, but um, so no, and and you know, I'm, as I say, I'm not even sure just because you've started something that solves a problem. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not. Um, I mean, I've learnt an awful lot, and I'm definitely kind of, you know, if I only I knew. 
and then what I know now kind of thing, I would have done everything much quicker and much better. So I'm not suggesting that it hasn't been a learning journey and that I'm not sort of slightly wiser than I was when I started. But am I, is it an entrepreneur? I don't know. I don't know. You know, not in the typical sense where you go and raise loads of money and um, conquer the world and go international and all that kind of stuff and then sell it and then float your business and all that kind of stuff. I haven't done much of that. Ask your kids what they think you are. I, I just did that to my three and a half year old, and he turned around and said, "Daddy, you're TikTok famous." I'm like, I, I don't even know what I had to explain. What well, kids pick up? I bet your 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 twins now are twenty two, right? Twenty one, twenty two years old now, are they? Yes, and I've got a couple of others as well. So. Yeah, and two dogs. Um, so you've got you've got a full house, right? Two dogs as well. Yeah, two dogs. Two yeah. Do- yeah, they're the real trouble. <laughs> I know, dogs. You can't, you can't um, bring them on holiday with you, for example. So, you, so they're a lot more work, actually. But, um, but so, so your kids. I've got a couple of questions. I know um, we've only got you for a little bit longer. Um, just a couple of questions to, to to wrap up. But I was interested in this kind of concept of work life balance because you know, you clearly you initially built the business out of your living room. You've you know had twins. Your partner's involved. You know your husband's involved in your business. This work-life balance that seems to come up a lot. You know how to get it. Have you got a view on it? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a very good delineation between work and life. Um, my life, you know, life is partly my work, and work is partly my life. And you know, I'm, I'm listening out for things that are of interest to me and mum's that all the time. In you know, in what some might view my free time, but um, it's 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 a passion and it's what I'm interested in. So I don't feel a great need to, you know, um, I don't know, to separate the two. And it would be impossible anyway. I mean, if I'm talking to, I don't know, someone about some partnership they might do with Bums there, but they also happen to be having dinner with them and they're, you know, they're, you know, they're meeting them on a social occasion. It doesn't really feel like work. Um, so, but I do think with kids, you have to work hard to carve out time where you're really present. Uh, danger with all, you know, these devices that we're surrounded by is that, you know, you get this idea of having one AirPod in while you're, you know, talking to your kids and, or you're checking your phone the whole time. I think that is not that healthy. So my, my sort of way of dealing with that is I've tried to sort of create almost diarise time where I am free of interruption and that's any kind of interruption but to particularly work interruptions and um, so I can actually be present and um, so that's the way I think it's and it's not so much the work intervenes it's that you know my mobile phone intervenes and um, and I think it's it's so addictive as a device and you know there's so many things popping up um, so notifications off phone off um and make sure that you're present when you're with you when you for the times with you can you can be with them that you need to be present well said i am um, i'm doing a bad job at that personally i'm trying to be better at it but when you've been locked down it's actually quite hard because you're working in and you're my three and a half year old the other day we went out to get a coffee and we looked at my phone and he shouted at me daddy get off your phone everybody looked at me and like kind of judged me like oh you know your you're three and a half year old is so right and uh and and it's it's it's, but it's very tricky to live life yeah i was very pleased to get an office eventually after sort of seven or eight years of working from the back bedroom and i remember you know even today i have horrific memories of being on radio five live with both my twin toddler daughters banging on the other side of the door <laughs> not understanding that it was at work you know? no they don't they so have no comprehension to... right they're like you know just stop that for a minute and give me attention my, my son i was doing a podcast the other day shouted up the stairs i need a poo I'll be right down to help you with that. So, because um, they have no idea, but, but that's part of the fun, isn't it? But um, yeah, I think the world's become more forgiving. It's a great thing about lockdown. Is uh, you know our families have inevitably entered our work world a bit more on Zoom. Yeah, no, I, I think I, I agree, and we accept um, people's lives. We get to see people's lives behind them on screen too. So that's kind of kind of interesting. Well, look, I'm, I'm conscious of time. Um, I want to I want to thank you for coming in. I'm just gonna I'm, I'm just gonna one last question to end the podcast. If you went back to your younger self and gave some advice, what would it be? I would say probably don't sweat the small stuff. 
Uh, and, and this isn't just about work. This is about, um, although there is something very key about work, I think do less better is a, is a good mantra for, for running a business. But, um, but no, I mean, you know, just, the, just a lot of, and it's what Momset is all about. It's about tapping into the wisdom of people who've actually come out the other side and can tell you it's not such a big deal. It's only a phase. Don't, don't worry about the small stuff. Don't, you know, fret about, if you're a parent, don't fret about, are they always having homemade organic vegan chia pots in their lunch? Uh, you know, to, to take shortcuts because you can't be perfect at everything. Um, and uh, and work out what really matters and make sure you're present for that bit. I like take shortcuts. It's uh, <laughs> it's it's, it's <laughs> so true. And and your 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 platform and what you've done it resonates with me on so many levels. As a parent, it resonates with me. As a business person, I'm not going to get rid of the word entrepreneur. As a business person, it resonates with me because I think you know part of what we're also trying to do is is show people show knowledge to those those that have come out the other side. To use your terminology as parents, as as people business people that have come out the other side after, in your case, 20 years of experience of building a building a platform out and let people know exactly what you're saying there. Don't sweat the small stuff, you know. Do less, better. It's, it's such it's such positive and important. Uh, message to get to the next generation of business people so I want to thank you for taking the time to share your story which is inspirational and thank you for creating a mum's net and grand's net uh, and thank you for coming on this podcast and and telling us your knowledge well it's been a pleasure Simon really enjoyed it thanks for having me thank you for listening to the purposeful project podcast today if you got any value from this podcast, then do feel free to give us a review and give us your feedback. And if you think anybody out there might enjoy this story of this real-life successful entrepreneur, then feel free to share. And of course, go and visit PurposefulProject.com and join our main list at any point. Thanks again for listening.